0: Acts chapter 2 beginning at verse 1. Let's read together and read aloud. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, And one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Shall we pray? Our Father and our God, we thank you and bless you for your precious word this morning. How we pray that you would indeed pour out your Spirit, that we may come to a greater understanding of this great event that we even today May experience in Christ. And so, Lord, we, we pray for the hearts of all who are here to be open, our minds, our hearts, uh, Lord, our spirits, to receive your word. Lord God, open eyes, open ears, so that we, Lord God, may know the power that you have given us to be your witnesses. And then, Lord God, may we go forth in that power, testify the wondrous things that Jesus Christ has done for us these things we pray in Jesus name amen you all may be seated thought I was going to keep you standing didn't you by the way I want you to keep Judy Ryback in prayer she was here for the first service many of you know Judy and Zig Uh, she had a little fainting spell and uh, Zig was taking her uh, to uh, uh, the doctor so if you'll just keep Judy Ryback In prayer, I need to write things down, and I forgot to mention that. Okay. Acts chapter 2. Whenever we read or whenever we hear of wildfires, such as those that affect a large portion of, let's say, Southern California or those that happened in the Texas Panhandle region as recently as March of last year, which, by the way, burned nearly a million acres of dry, parched land, The one word that is a constant in dealing with these fires is containment. Containment. The goal of firefighters in fighting any type of fire is containing that fire so that it no longer spreads to cause more damage uh, than has already occurred. Most of us are familiar with that when we see fires of, of that proportion on the news and all. And one major dilemma usually in fighting any fire, and especially fighting those wildfires, is wind. Because wind, first of all, of course, helps to uh, not only strengthen the fire, but helps to spread the fire. I was reading an article on those fires in the Texas panhandle that spread into Oklahoma, and, uh, and a statement uh, seemed to catch my eye as I was uh, reading that article, and, and it was a statement, I quote, a series of wind-whipped Grass fires broke out Wednesday in Oklahoma. This, of course, was was last year, charring more than four thousand acres and briefly threatening, or briefly threatened, homes near Oklahoma City. Uh, But but that phrase, a a a series of wind-whipped grass fires. Now we know that eventually those fires were contained. Fires were limited. And then they burned out. 2,000 years ago, a wind-whipped fire ignited a meeting place in Jerusalem that spread from 120 Jewish believers in Jesus Christ out into a large crowd that had gathered because of that fire, which would eventually affect 3,000 people in that crowd. But that fire would continue to spread throughout the events recorded in the book of Acts, and it continues to spread today. That fire, folks, cannot be contained. It is the fire of the Holy Spirit of God. And it is that fire that we are introduced to here in Acts chapter two. And and What's very interesting to me is the importance of wind and fire together. On this earth, a damaging force. In the body of Christ, it is a powerful, powerful force to change the lives of millions. We sit here today, most of us in this room, we sit here today because the fire spread to where we were so that we might hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that we might be saved from our sins, so that we might be an active part of the body of Jesus Christ, but only through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so this is what Jesus called the promise of the Father and the baptism of the Holy Spirit when we read last time in Acts chapter 1 or a couple of weeks ago when we began our study in verses 4 and 5 and being assembled together with them, He said, Uh, or it says, He commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which He said, You have heard from Me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so as we enter into Acts chapter 2, we come to that place of receiving the promised baptism. When the, the 120 disciples receive that promised baptism, and we read in verse 1, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, something was taking place. Something major was happening. A prophetic fulfillment A prophetic fulfillment was taking place. A particular time was being fulfilled, or better yet, uh, uh, well it was being filled, but it was better yet fulfilled, as indicated by the term, had fully come. The day of Pentecost had fully come. This isn't just some indication that something had happened chronologically only. It was a fulfillment. Had fully come means it had come to its fulfillment. This would be the day of Pentecost, which in fact, is the Feast of Pentecost. One of three feasts held each year where all Jewish men were required to come to Jerusalem to celebrate. Now that began actually in the book of Exodus. It began when, when, when the feasts were being given to the children of Israel. Exodus 34 verse 18. I want to mention three of those feasts. The middle one being the Feast of Pentecost. It's going to be called something else, but I'm going to give you all the names. In Exodus 34, verse 18, the Feast, it says, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, in our study of the Gospel of Luke not long ago, when we studied the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we, we also realized that this was also Passover. We, we linked the Feast of Unleavened Bread with Passover. So, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was to be observed in Abib, which is, uh, for us, March or April. Or March and April within that time frame, which was also the month of the Exodus when the children of Israel left Egypt. And then there's another feast that is mentioned the Feast of Weeks. Uh, first of all, in verse 21, if you'll ju- uh, just jump down there uh, six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. And you shall observe, and that's verse twenty-two. You shall observe the feast of weeks, same as the feast of Pentecost. I'll explain it in a moment. You shall observe the feast of weeks of the first fruits of wheat harvest. By the way, it's also called the feast of first fruits. It's also called the feast of harvest. And then it says the the, the third uh, a feast is the feast of ingathering, as you see there in verse uh, twenty-two as well, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year, all your men shall appear before the Lord, the Lord God of Israel. Well, of course, they hadn't quite reached Jerusalem yet. But down through the, the history of, of, of Israel, they would eventually get to Jerusalem. The temple would be built. And then they would be required then to come to the temple to, uh, those, uh, for those three feasts in obedience to this particular passage of Scripture. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread was to be observed in Aviv, March or April, the month of the Exodus. The Feast of Weeks, also called the Feast of Harvest, the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of First Fruits, was to be celebrated 50 days after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which we also know as Passover, in early spring. Lastly, the Feast of Ingathering was celebrated at harvest time, as the text says there in Exodus, at year's end, which would be in early autumn in the Jewish calendar, early autumn, which is September, October. Now, why am I saying all of this? Well, our focus is to be on the Feast of Weeks. Verse 1, on the day of Pentecost, or when the day of Pentecost is fully come. So our focus is on this Feast of Weeks, Pentecost. Why? The word Pentecost means 50 Because it was celebrated 50 days after Passover. 50 days after Passover. What is Passover? That is when Jesus gave Himself as the sacrifice for our sins, the Lamb of God. 50 days after that was Pentecost. And and see, so this isn't coincidence. Coincidence. This is God's plan for us to see how from down through the ages His Word is true. And as far as the Feast of Weeks is concerned, it occurred on the day after a week of weeks. That's why it's called the Feast of Weeks. Why? Well, there's seven days in a week times seven weeks. That equals 49 days. So as the, that was 49 days from the Passover. So as the Feast of Firstfruits... It was then celebrated on the 50th day. It was primarily a celebration of the beginning of the summer harvest. When the first sheaves of the harvest were offered up to God as a reminder of who the provider was for the nation. So they would, on the Feast of Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of First Fruits, or the Feast of Harvest, they would lift up that first harvest, the first fruits, unto God, because the first fruits always belong to God. And they would lift that up unto the Lord. They would offer that unto God. Well, it is significant then. because And and it wasn't a coincidence then that the Holy Spirit fell upon the church that day bringing the first fruits of the cross, the first fruits of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as 3,000 people would soon respond to the message preached and be saved and the church would truly be born. Isn't it a wonderful thing that that feast of harvest the feast of pentecost the feast of first fruits was the day that the spirit came upon the church it was a prophetic fulfillment of the feast of harvest the first fruits of harvest had been gathered now we're also told that on that day the day when it was fully come you see fulfilled finally they were with one accord in one place. Now the phrase, with one accord, although we saw it last time, I didn't spend a lot of time on it, I'm going to do that now. It has a tremendous meaning literally. For them to be in one accord literally meant that they were with a single passion. With a single passion. And folks, let me tell you this. That we as believers in Jesus Christ should have a single passion for Jesus. A single united passion for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I hope and pray that we in this room today are here with that same passion. Being in one accord for Jesus Christ. With one accord. We saw back in chapter 1 and verse 14 that they were already in one accord. These all continued with one accord in prayer, in supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with His brothers. And we've mentioned before what an essential part the work of the Holy Spirit plays in the unity of God's people. But there's an additional element here. They weren't just in one accord. What else? They were also in one place this is significant as well because because they were gathered together as we are today in this place you see it is a sad thing that some people believe or or maybe they just have fallen into the mindset that going to church is optional Going to church is an optional thing. I could oh listen, I don't need to go to church to worship God. I could worship God in my own room. I could worship God on top of a mountain. I could worship God inside, oh, you, know, on, on a tree. You know, I don't know. I mean, we can worship God in all kinds of places. If I don't need to go to church, I don't need that. I, no, well, you know, there's only one reason why you do, because it's so in, in obedience that you should. We need to be obedient to what God tells us. God has called us to be a body. You know it's interesting that the Bible calls us living stones built together as the body of, you know, as the the building of God. You know that He didn't create us to be lone bricks. Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher, once talked about lone bricks. You know, you have a body here and then just this lone brick over here by himself. That's that's not being a part of the body of Christ. By the way, stone is what God creates; bricks is what man makes. The man made thought, you know, when we put ourselves outside of the body of Christ. It really isn't an optional thing. I mean, consider what we're told in the book of Hebrews. This isn't Just in this one little section here, it's really not a little section, but I, I want to read this passage to you because of the things that we can learn about what our, our, not mine, but our responsibility is. Therefore, brethren, this is Hebrews 10, verse 19, Therefore, brethren... Having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Listen, you've got to be someplace to be entering in. And then we can come by the blood of Jesus Christ. That blood that was shed so we have, we have that opportunity. We have that access into the very throne room of God. It says, by a new and living way, verse 20, which He consecrated for us through the veil that is His flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God. Now, with that in mind, look at verse 22. Verse 22. Let us draw near. What do we see there? Let us, together, us, draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I think the, uh, the implication here is clear. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for He who promised is faithful. Then look at verse 24. And let us consider one another let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the matter of some, or manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. I don't know about you, but I look around and I see the day approaching. By everything that this evil and wicked world is going through, we are supposed to be seeing the day approaching. If that's the case, then we need to be understanding that we are to be together in Christ. Encouraging one another. Supporting one another. Praying for one another. We all need to encourage each other in the Lord. If necessary, we need to provoke one another to love and good works. It isn't just the pastor's job. It's each and every one of us here together as the body of Christ. The catch is that we have to be around each other and get to know each other if we're really going to be encouraging each other. How can we do it if we're not around with each other? The church is often compared to a body. uh, You know that. But you wouldn't feel too good if your kidneys were off playing golf and, and your stomach was shopping at the mall while the rest of you was at work. Right? I mean, you'd then feel like you need to be in a hospital. I'm missing something here. Where's my kidneys? You know, (laughs) where's my stomach? Hey, look, I want to buy that. Okay, so you, you understand what I'm saying. You know, we're missing something. Every part needs the other. Things were happening, they were in one accord, they were in one place. They were not forsaking the assembling of themselves, they were together because they were in obedience to Christ who said, wait together and tarry in Jerusalem. And then something else happened. Look at verse 2 of our text. It says, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. This sound filled the house. Simply the first phrase of this verse, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven. This first ver- phrase here of this verse is telling us that this work was a work of God. This was a work of God, folks. Listen carefully. There came a sound from heaven. It was a work of God. What were they doing? They were waiting. They were praying. They were, uh, they were just uh, all together in one place. They were waiting. Suddenly, unexpectedly, really what that means, the sound from heaven came. Now, why am I emphasizing this? Well, I'm, I'm doing that because a lot of damage has been done in and to the body of Christ when preachers try to whip people into some kind of an emotional frenzy in order for them to receive some kind of an emotional experience. Hyping you up. Oh, listen, brothers, let's get up. Let's all stand on our feet. Let's get on our chairs. Let's jump from our chairs. You know, let's trust the Lord. Well, you know, you see a poor little 90-year-old trying to get up on a chair. Come on whipping people into some kind of frenzy so they can experience some emotional thing. Let me tell you a story. A traveling evangelist always put on a grand finale at his revival meetings. And when he was to preach at a church, he would secretly hire a small boy to sit in the ceiling rafters. You can look up there. There's nobody there. But he would secretly hire a small boy to sit in the ceiling rafters with a dove in a cage. And toward the end of his sermon, the preacher would shout for the Holy Spirit to come down and the boy in the rafters would dutifully release the dove. At one revival meeting, however, nothing happened when the preacher called for the Holy Spirit to descend. He again raised his arms and he exclaimed, Come down, Holy Spirit! Still there was no dove. The preacher then heard the anxious voice of of the small boy Called down from the rafters, sir, a yellow cat just ate the Holy Spirit. Should I throw down the yellow cat? (laughs) You see, we get ourselves in trouble when it isn't the Lord. We we need to let it just be the Lord. Don't don't you think? I mean, folks, the hundred and twenty that were in that room didn't have to whip themselves up to a frenzy. God just simply did His work. That sound from heaven. And I want you to listen very carefully to me. We have, a lot of under, you know, we have a lot of teachings in our minds and brains, you know, down through the years about, you know, the power of the Holy Spirit, what happened that day in, in, at Pentecost. I want you to listen. Follow along with me. So we're looking at this text. That sound from heaven wasn't a rushing mighty wind. Listen carefully. It was as of a rushing mighty wind. In other words, it just sounded like one. But they heard the sound. The important thing is they heard the sound. It was as of a rushing mighty wind. They heard the sound. Listen, Hollywood would have everyone's hair blowing all around. There'd be debris flying through the sky and on paper here and all kinds of stuff. I mean, that's just Hollywood. But you know what? It wasn't that way. It just got noisy. It was the sound of a rushing mighty wind and that sound filled the house and it overwhelmed them not an actual wind well it might have been but the text is very clear it was as of a rushing mighty wind but but the concept of wind though is what's important here the concept of wind being related to the holy spirit is an appropriate one we talked about it when we talked about wildfires you see the wind would remind them of the Old Testament divine manifestation, God speaking to Job out of a whirlwind, a mighty east wind drying up out a path uh, uh, through the Red Sea allowing the Israelites to escape from Egypt on dry land, dry ground. The wind, if you will in the in the Hebrew the ruach, the Holy Spirit, wind was the symbol of the spirit in the Old Testament. While in many cases the spirit was manifest in a mighty way, and here again this is where a lot of people get this thing that everything has to happen, you know, in a in a loud way, in a you know in a very uh, 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 kind of a bombastic way, as it were. The spirit appeared to Elijah in a still small voice, literally in a sound of a gentle blowing the Hebrew, that's what a still, small voice says. One translation calls it a gentle whisper. Let's look at that for just a moment. First Kings 19, verses 11 and 12. Now this is uh, during that uh, event after uh, Elijah has taken care of, of the prophets of Baal, but now Jezebel finds out and she goes after Elijah, and Elijah runs and hides, you know, from Jezebel. Nonetheless, this is what uh, God says to Elijah. Verse 11, he said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. I want you to notice some things here. We said that wind is oftentimes a symbol of the Holy Spirit, but God will sometimes clarify some things. He said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord and behold the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. In that particular case, the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. Now see, these are all things that we would relate to the Spirit, but God is clarifying something. Notice then He says, And after the fire, a still, small voice. After the fire, a gentle blowing. After the fire, a gentle whisper. There's something for us to learn here. From this we should learn to be ready to recognize the work of the Spirit, for He doesn't always work the way we think. He will. We think that because we see some wind blowing or some earthquake taking place over here in this church or that church and all of this excitement's going on, oh that's gotta be the spirit. Does it have to be? Too often God is saying, I'm not in that. They're over here doing their own thing, but I'm not there. Over here the places are shaking and stuff, but I'm not there. Read the book of Jeremiah through. How many times is God showing the very fact that He is not in the things that some people are saying He's doing? This is a very serious thing. In Acts chapter 4, verse 31, we're told that when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. A few chapters later, you see another experience happens. The place is shaken. Here in Acts chapter 2, there was a sound as of a rushing mighty wind. God working in a different way. Jesus also used wind to speak of the Holy Spirit. When He said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 verse 8, He says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. The interesting thing is we cannot see those things, but we see the effects of it. I am so grateful, so thankful that I've known so many of you for so long in knowing that God has truly done a work in you. I may not have ever seen that. A lot of times I don't see how God's working in you, but I see the results. The Spirit was working. The Spirit was moving. The Spirit was changing. The Spirit was changing your heart. Not that the Spirit changes, but He changes us. And then the sound of the wind, going back to Acts chapter 2, the sound of the wind indicated then to those gathered in that meeting place that God was about to manifest Himself and His Spirit in a very special way. Again, I refer you to the word suddenly here at the beginning of the verse because it indicates something happening that was unexpected and without warning. Too often people go into churches today expecting, they know what they're going to see because they, they just, you know, it happens all the time, you know. And then you know you see them you know and I'm not trying to make fun of people I understand this but sometimes you see people go into the church and all of a sudden as soon as they walk in they're you know doing something you know like turn a switch on it's not a, that's expected here they were waiting they didn't know what that was going to happen suddenly it says this happened look at verse three now. After the rushing mighty wind of uh, the, the rushing mighty wind sound in verse three it says then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire and one sat upon each of them. Now I want you to understand the picture in, in the Greek what we get is first there appeared to them it says divided tongues as a fire but the picture is that they were first that that fire was first there in a, in a in a single unity and then it was parted or it was divided or it was distributed for the word cloven, as we'll see in just a moment, is, is the word that means distributed. So that's the picture I want you to see. First, there was a sound to hear, verse 2. And now there was something to see. There seemed to be a visible manifestation that was taking place here. From the, from the word appeared, which is in the in the Greek, we get the sense that their eyes were registering some kind of input. They were seeing something. There were certainly times when the Holy Spirit made some physical, visible appearance. Uh, Take, for example, what we find in in John's description of John, uh, John the Baptist in John chapter 1, verses 32 and 33, where John tells us that John the Baptist bore witness saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove. And He remained upon Him. I did not know Him, but He who sent Me to baptize with water said to Me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on Him, this is He who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist was speaking about Jesus. He saw the Spirit descend upon Jesus. It was a visible manifestation that he could see with his eyes. And so just as suddenly then, getting back to our text, these cloven tongues like tongues of flame or tongues of fire appeared. Now the word "cloven," as I said before, means distributed. It is the same word that was used in the Gospel of Matthew for the word divided or parted in Matthew 27 verse 35 at the crucifixion of Jesus when it says then they crucified Him and divided or parted His garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They divided or parted My garments among them and for My clothing they cast lots. Same word. They distributed to everyone. What was left of Jesus' garments. And so the sense is the sense is that the phenomena came down from heaven as a single unit and then distributed itself among and upon the individuals in the room. There was, of course, no actual fire, like we would understand fire, and no one was burned. Understand? But fire and light were, some, were common symbols of the presence of God, as in the case of the burning bush. At the call of Moses, out in the wilderness. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 2, I know most of you are familiar with this. Where the angel of the Lord appeared to to Moses in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the the bush was not consumed. This is a wonderful verse of Scripture to tell us that that the Lord wants to... Wants to manifest Himself. And and, you know, the the Bible does tell us that God is a consuming fire. But here in this particular case, the bush is not consumed. You know what gets consumed? Moses. And yet he wasn't consumed physically. But he was overwhelmed by the presence of the Spirit of God. And it tells us, you know, that the Spirit of God as fire can come upon us and not consume us, but, but fill us with that burning passion for Christ. And that's what we need to see here is the presence of God. The presence of God at the giving of the law. If you go to Exodus 19, verse 18, now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked greatly. The presence of God. The fire of God. Yet it was done in such a way that they could see this by the way, there are those who believe that the tongues of fire in, in Acts chapter 2 represented a baptism of fire to, to bring about cleansing or even judgment. But the hearts and the minds, listen carefully, the hearts and the minds of the 120 were already open to the resurrected Christ. The hearts and the minds of the 120 were already obedient to the Lord Jesus when they went to Jerusalem to tarry there and wait for the promise of the Father. The the hearts and the minds of the 120 were already They were already filled with praise and joy. This is what we are told by Luke at the end of his gospel when he says, And they worshipped Him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. And so rather than cleansing or judgment... The fire here signified the Lord's acceptance of the body of Christ the church as the temple of the Holy Spirit. And then the acceptance of the individual believers as also being temples of the Spirit. Understand what I'm saying. The Spirit came upon the church collectively in that room that day and then distributed itself to each individual person. Upon the church collectively, upon each individual We are part of the body of Christ, but we are still members, individuals of that body. And each individual who is a believer in Jesus Christ is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul teaches this. He teaches the Spirit upon the body collectively and the individual as well. Ephesians chapter 2 we're dealing with, with the, uh, the, corp- the corporate or the collective uh, body of Christ. In verse 19, he says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Here we need to understand that he's speaking to the church as a whole. And then he says in verse 20, Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, again, speaking of the whole being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, the whole, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So it is the church collectively that is to be the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. The same idea is given to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, where Paul says to the church, collectively, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If I say that to you all, now here in Texas I'll say y'all, but I'm saying to you, I'm not speaking to you individually, I'm speaking to you collectively. You collectively. This is what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 16. Do you not know that you collectively are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? Yet later on, three chapters later, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19, he speaks to the individual heart. He says in 1 Corinthians 6:19, or do you individually... Within the collective, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you individually are not your own? So now he not only speaks collectively to the body of Christ, now he speaks to every member of the body of Christ individually. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit individually. It happened that day at Pentecost. The Spirit came upon the church collectively and then distributed itself individually. Folks, God knows what He's doing. God knows what He's doing. God fulfills His plan completely. And so from receiving that promised baptism, we come to the resulted filling. Now, I've I've made some distinctions here. It may kind of go against the grain of some of your teaching on the Holy Spirit. But this is not to to change things. It's for for us to understand this better. In verse 4, and by the way, we're only going to really cover the first phrase of verse 4, and then we'll pick up from here next time. But it says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance." But for our concerns, we're going to look at verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. We could consider the first three verses of chapter 2 as the description of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The promise of the Father in verses 1 through 3. In particular verses 2 and 3. The sound of a, as of a rushing mighty wind. The fire that came and distributed itself upon each individual. There is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit came upon them. But now notice the word and in verse 1. I'm sorry, in verse 4. And they were all filled. The baptism came. And they were filled. Now, I know that there are some who have, have, have been taught that, you know, the baptism and the filling is the same thing. Now, to some extent, that's true. But, but follow along with me for just a moment. The promise of the Father in verses 2 and 3, the baptism, what happens next It's not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. For in verse 4, they are said to be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit in the baptism comes upon. When we consider baptism, we consider immersion, don't we? That's what the word means, to be baptized, to be immersed. uh, Primarily, of course, in the thought of water, being immersed in water. A symbolic thing of what God has done to cleanse us, to to take us into death, and to bring us up into life, everlasting and if I remember well, most of us, if not all of us, who were, were baptized, were baptized only once. Except for those who want to go to Israel. And then they say, please, please baptize me in the Jordan. Okay, I'll bet. And they get baptized again. Now, God's not going to get mad at us if we get baptized again. You know, there's some people that got baptized when they were little kids and they didn't understand what was going on. They say, baptize me again. Okay, sir. Hey, I'll baptize you many times. The, the first one counts. What, what I'm saying is you only get baptized once, really. But then you live your life for Christ every day after that. And you need to. So here's here's the point that I'm trying to make. In verse 4, they're said to be filled with the Spirit. These disciples were baptized with the Spirit only once. On the day of Pentecost. Now, they were also filled with the Spirit that day. But they would not be baptized with the Holy Spirit again. This is not what we see for these 120. After this, they would go on being filled with the Holy Spirit, again and again and again. We see this throughout the book of Acts. We will see it as we go through our study. But when baptism is mentioned, it's not mentioned of the 120 to happen again. Just as we don't uh, encourage, you know, know, being baptized in water. So we already read in Acts 4.31 where they were filled again and the room shook. Remember that? Acts 4.31. Now understand this. Jesus said that you would receive the baptism with the Holy Spirit. That's what he told them. That's what he tells us. You would receive. How did they receive? They waited. They didn't know when it was going to happen, but they were waiting that day, and they were all together, and then the Spirit came upon them. Paul would command us to go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. So there is a distinctive, there's a distinctive experience here. Paul commands us to go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5.18 is the classic verse here because it says, "...and do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be continually being filled." I know those words aren't there, but that's what it says in the Greek. It says, "...be continually being filled with the Spirit." "...be continually being filled with the Spirit." What is it? Is it that we're leaky vessels? Probably so. We are certainly earthen vessels. The Bible teaches us, and so we are to be fee- being filled with the Spirit. The apostles went through this being filled with the Spirit many times. Paul went through that same experience. He says, "Be continually being filled with the Spirit." It brings us to mi- it brings to mind the, the three part or the threefold experience of the Holy Spirit in, in, in every Christian's life. First of all, the Holy Spirit comes with us. He comes alongside of us. And and then we we have that word that is used for with, which is para. The para experience of the Holy Spirit. The the Lord comes alongside of us. Para, for example, para church organization like Campus Crusade for Christ or the Navigators. This is a a, a group made up of people from the body of Christ, but it's an organization that comes alongside of the church to help and support the church. Para church organization. So uh, in that particular sense, the Holy Spirit comes alongside uh, at, at first for us to convict us of sin, to bring us to the knowledge of Christ, and so on and so forth. We cannot say that Jesus Christ is Lord without the Holy Spirit. So He comes along with us. And then we are told that, uh, that He came upon them. Well, that's another experience. The word epi, epi, E-P-I, uh, in the Greek, uh, remember epidermis, you know, like your skin? It, it's, it's, uh, it's upon us. <laughs> and so upon. There is the upon experience of the Holy Spirit. The, the 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 baptism of the Holy Spirit came upon them, but then we find that in verse four they were filled with. What does that mean? That means that they would be the Holy Spirit would be in them. And and two classic passages here, two verses that bring those three things together. John fourteen seventeen. Before Jesus goes to the cross, he says he's speaking of the Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you. There's the para and will be in you. That's the N, E-N in the Greek for in, experience. The upon is found, of course, in, first, uh, in the first chapter of Acts, verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes, has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, you might be saying, well, why are you splitting hairs here? Why are we splitting hairs concerning the baptism and the filling? I- I'll give you one good reason. And, and it's, it's, it's a major reason. I don't want you to be ignorant of the power of the Holy Spirit, first of all. That's the main reason. I want you to be aware of the power of the Spirit, that it is for us, it is for today. We are to have it. It's been given to the church. All right, but here, here's the thing. Conservative teaching today that says that there is no baptism with the Holy Spirit for you to experience will lead many either into legalism or self-dependence. On the individual level, it will, lead to, it will lead to legalism or self-dependence. There's not really a baptism for the church anymore. The, the church already, in the 120, they were baptized and, and it's not experienced. You don't need to worry about it. No, no, it, it would lead to legalism. Lead to self-dependence. On the collective end... It would also lead churches, lead churches into program after program rather than depending upon the Spirit and the power of God. Now, every church has programs. We have a lot of things. We have a lot of announcements, you know, to give. But I tell you this. Before we, can, we will ever do anything, we want to pray. We want to know, God, is this what you want us to do? But I've been in churches time and again. Where all there is is, well, we're doing this program because you know they were doing over here and it works. We're going to do it, and we're going to do this program. I said, you ever ask the Spirit if if maybe that's what? Maybe He just wants you to trust Him. There's no power in program. There's power in the Spirit of God. Please understand this. So, from one extreme of conservative uh, theology, to say that there is no experience like that, it leads to something that is not good for the church. On the other end. When I speak of charismatic and Pentecostal teaching, I'm, I'm dealing right now with the extreme of that because there are some very good charismatic and Pentecostal teaching on the Holy Spirit <clears throat> that we ought to listen to because it's right down with the word of right down the, the uh, right on the word of God. But I'm dealing with that which is, 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 is so far in the extreme where they teach that, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit, uh, is, the only evidence of that is, the, is that of speaking in tongues. Now, I told you I wasn't going to speak about speaking in tongues, but just a little bit. Because they say, you know, have you received the Holy Spirit? Are, are you baptized in the Spirit? Yes. Well, do you speak in tongues? No. Well, then you're not baptized in the Spirit. See, what does that lead to? That, that leads people to believe that there's something that has to be earned or learned. Oh, listen, brother, you don't have it. You must not be holy enough. Well, that's okay, though, because we can teach you how to speak in tongues. There's something wrong with that, folks, because if it is a gift, then you don't have to be taught it. It is given to you, as you'll see next week when we get into the next portion. The point of this is that you know, when people are telling you, listen, come to a class where you can learn how to speak in tongues. Folks, it's, that's not a gift. If it's just a matter of blabbing and starting with little baby sounds, that's not a gift. That's not the Holy Spirit. That's manipulation. Folks, it is not gospel. It is not Bible. It is not right. When God gives you a gift, if indeed, if that's the gift that God gives you, man, you're going to, be, you're going to actually be saying something. And not only that, it comes with batteries included. That's how God gives gifts. It doesn't say, well, you know, if you want this gift, then you have to learn how to do it. No, man, that's, that's wrong. That's wrong. So I, I just want you to be aware of, of the extremes here and realize that the Word of God is true, the Word of God is right, and the Word of God is for today, and so is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and so is the filling of the Spirit. We need this to be effective testimonies and effective witnesses for Jesus Christ. This is why I wanted to bring that up to you. It's important that we understand what God wants us to understand about the Holy Spirit. And let me also tell you this, there's a lot we don't understand, but that's okay too. Because we can trust the Lord who gives us everything we need and He'll fill us with everything we need Because we can trust Him. And we want to serve Him with everything He's given us. He's given us life and godliness through Jesus Christ. He's given us power for witness through the Holy Spirit. He's given us His Word so that we might be equipped to lead others to the kingdom of God and to Christ. He has given us everything. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He's given us everything. Let me tell you this, if you feel dry out there today, maybe you're a Christian, maybe you receive the baptism of the Spirit, maybe you have received the filling of the Spirit every day until one day when you just took your eyes off the Lord and you were looking one way or another. Folks, listen, the Lord wants to fill you again. He hasn't taken it away. He wants you to be filled again. But you need to call out to Him. You need to desire it. You need to take a step. You need to take a stand. And you need to say, Lord, fill me again. Fill me with your Spirit. And keep filling me. Are you ready to be filled? Are you ready to be being filled with the dunamis power of the Holy Spirit, to be witnesses for Christ? Before we go to the table of communion, we're going to be here just a few more minutes, but before we go to the table of communion, let me just just read these words of Jesus. John 7, verse 37. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood out and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. Notice, they would receive. They hadn't yet. Why? For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. You want to know something? He's glorified. And His Spirit is available. Let me give you back to that thought. Wind and fire. The wind is going to blow in your life. You're going to catch fire. And then that fire is going to spread. Let's catch on fire for Jesus Christ today. When you take that bread and you take that cup, you say, Lord, fill me with the fire of your Holy Spirit and spread me until the day of Christ. Let's do that collectively as a church. Let's do it individually as members of His body. Let's pray.